Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Text Message, the UK-focused technology podcast with me, Nate Langson. And me, Ian Morris. And continually, it is brought to you by you. Thank you to our patrons supporting us every week at patreon.com slash utech. You are gods to us. And if you are a patron, a god to us, then this is your extended cut of this week's show. And if you're not yet a patron but would like to get our extended longer cuts or our as-live versions, which this week is about 21 minutes longer uh, than our even our extended cut, thanks to our deep discussion about everything from British Edge Network technology to uh, Ian's cats, um, then <laughs> you can go to patreon.com forward slash UK tech um, and we do uh, weekly columns and things there as well. So thank you very much uh, to everyone who's supporting us there. And Rob Hughes, who I believe uh, joined us uh, shortly after we record last week's show. So thank you very much, Rob, for joining us and to everyone else who's there already. Well, this week, the government announced that a specialist squad of prison and police officers has been formed to tackle the threat drones allegedly posed to prison security. In a statement, the government said the team of investigators will work closely with national law enforcement agencies and the prison service to inspect drones that have been recovered from prisons in a bid to identify and track down the people involved in attempting to smuggle in contraband. Now, crucially, it says this new setup will investigate the specific drones used uh, by individuals around prisons. And they're doing this as frequently drones are being used to smuggle in things like drugs and mobile phones in particular uh, into prisons. There have been convictions, apparently. I've seen a few. I mean, some of these sentences they actually get are are several years long, at least in recent uh, history. But it's a growing problem, I think, probably in part to the fact that the cost of the drones are very low now um, and they're shrinking in size and uh, and in noise. So now I particularly liked Engadget's fairly down-to-earth summary, which was, quote, if you're picturing a crack team of drone gun-wielding heavies with eagles perched on their shoulders, sorry to burst your bubble, but it's more of an intel-sharing initiative. Uh, this was something the BBC agreed with and described them more down-to-earth as involving forensic examination of captured drones to try and find out who was flying them. Now, Ian, I know that when we, when I put this uh, in the lineup, you were very uh, excited about this. Yes. In fact, I think you marked it with the word yes in yes. bold in red. So why don't yeah. you tell me why you're so uh, so well, excited about this? I mean, because I because I sort of appreciate that this is actually, a, it's, it's obviously a really big problem. And it's a problem that we just wouldn't have without technology. Like dr- drones make it very easy to smuggle things into prison, ultimately. If you can communicate to someone inside when the drone will be overhead and where it will come overhead then they can be waiting and it, you know it, it's almost certainly possible to evade detection and so doing uh, there was a there was a good story actually um, in the US about some prisoners who'd managed to um, they'd been involved in part of the stripping down of old computers which they um, which they were as part of a government program that they would earn money for I guess um, and they, they had built their own set of computers that they'd hidden in the ceiling so prisoners are very cunning when it comes to breaking the rules and getting things that they want and obviously drones was a natural way of and i remember we we did we had talked about this before didn't we and increasingly i feel like drone companies are going to build in to the software things like um 
you know, uh, geofencing that stops drones from going anywhere near prisons, essentially, because there's no reason for them to. Prisons, um, airports and government bases is, is, is exactly. one method that's been mooted. And another method yeah. is simply to have uh, kind of not radar, sort of radar, but essentially drone blasting technologies where they block the frequencies used so they would fall out of the sky. But then I think that what would probably happen is because a lot of the drones, certainly the higher end ones, have GPS, they know where they took off from. So if they came into a problem where they lost contact with the controller, they would simply turn around and go back to its last known point or at least back. And then they'd follow them and stuff and find out where the people were. But it's interesting Um, you mentioned the US because this problem does exist outside of the UK, of course. And I, I looked up some details about uh, where and how. And in 2015, according to a uh, story I saw in the Washington Post uh, written last year, there was a a bit of a scuffle at a prison in Ohio uh, where a drone dropped heroin into the exercise yard of one uh, prison. And then a little more recently in Maryland, uh, the same paper reported, uh, prosecutors did convict a recently released inmate and a prisoner serving a life sentence on charges of attempting to distribute drugs in prisons by delivering um, contraband during several nighttime missions which apparently netted them about six thousand dollars per drop in product sales and it was so lucrative a scheme that the former inmate had purchased a new truck with the profits wow so that was um, amazing I mean, they, they were they were convicted as well. so it's not just in is in the uk it's not no, just no. in the us there were the global examples too but it's a it's it's obviously a developing problem well, what I was going to say is that the, but the big problem, really, is going to be that it's actually very easy to build your own drone without any, without buying a, a you know, like a DJI or whatever, um, because the the components are relatively straightforward. There are things like Arduinos or Ardui, Arduinos, however it's pronounced, that will, uh, you know, with pre-built specs that would get you a drone in the air. So the problem will not go away just because of uh, what the big manufacturers do. It'll make it a little bit more inaccessible to novices. Uh, but, I, you know, I like anything in crime, there's always someone with a specialism who can, uh, you know, help you out. So it, it is going to be a, an ongoing issue. And uh, so it's interesting to see that they're getting on top of it. Well, back in 1990, uh, well, the 1990s, I think what we used to call them are radio-controlled planes, didn't we? Yeah, sorry. I mean, I thought that, uh, that there was something about that sentence that made me feel like it was going to be longer than it actually was. Yeah, no. exactly, exactly. And I mean, uh, uh, also, you know, as simple as just people walking up to prison walls and throwing stuff over. I mean, it, you know, it, it, it's always been, there's always been a problem of this kind. It's just getting slightly different. Yeah. Well, John Podmore, who was the former head of the Prison Services Anti-Corruption Unit, uh, said that while there was an issue with contraband in prisons, targeting this money at drones was, quote, a PR stunt. Uh, This uh, was uh, with him talking to the BBC. And he said, quote, I've seen no evidence that there is a real problem with drones. I think the number of incidents last year was 33. There are some 10,000 mobile phones found every year in prison. My question to the prison service would be, how many of those were found hanging from drones? Now, I see his point, but 33 is more than there was. And if it's 33 yeah. now, it might be 330 next year. It might be 3,300 well, the year that's, after. That's 33 incidents they know about, right? Yes, so true. for every 33 incidents they know about, there must be, you know, another 100 bags of heroin making it into prisons. And we know that there is a massive drugs problem in prisons, both here and in the US. Uh, and it's considered to be, you know, a real issue because... If nothing else, prison is supposed to be a way for, you know, convicts to uh, rehabilitate themselves. And 
if you're a if you're a drug addict, then you go into prison. You've got no choice but to give up, and that can be a huge boost. That can be a, a great kickstart to being clean when you get on the outside, and you know, re, re, you know, turning your life around. Which is ultimately what prison is all about, anyway. Right? It's yeah. not about punishment, is it? It's supposed to be rehabilitation. Well, we could drone on about this for a long oh. time, uh, but you may um, fly in your opinions uh, to podcast at natelangson.com. Let us know what you think to crack teams tracking down drone flyers sending contraband to prison. Podcast at natelangson.com. Well, staying on the subject somewhat of law... Engadget pointed us towards the news this week that a government plan to introduce online convictions, allowing people who'd committed petty crimes to plead guilty online and pay fines without having to go to court, has been scrapped. Uh, Now, we discussed this in depth on episode 86 uh, back in February, and it was intended, this uh, this system, to be used to pay fines for minor non-imprisonable offences that have a predetermined penalty. That's things like rail and tram fare, dodging uh, or fishing without the appropriate licence. Now, the online option was provided in uh, what was called the Prison and Courts Bill, but it's been deprioritised as Parliament is now focusing on pushing through other legislation uh, before the end of the current session, uh, Engadget says, and ahead of the uh, fantastic, much appreciated snap general election uh, on the 8th of june uh, so instead a public committee yesterday uh, that being uh, when would that have been probably the 20th uh, voted not to proceed anymore with this bill so all that conversation that highly informed super detail and dare i say fascinating conversation we had back in eight, episode 86 ian uh, is null and void uh, much yeah. like this and this, I wasn't a uh, fan, project. was I? But I, I do remember people pointed out that you can already pay certain fines online, can't you? Yes. Um, like parking tickets and stuff like that, and and I think maybe speeding fines. The difficult, um, the difference here was the, the the officially pleading guilty bit. Yes, and I wasn't a big fan of that, and that was what caused me grief. I, I'm not particularly sorry to see it go. Um, I think it needs to be quite well thought out um, if it's going to be pushed forward with in the future but hey we've got we're going to have our 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 legal teams in government are going to be very very busy for what you know no matter what you feel about brexit moving all those eu laws into uk law is going to take some work and um we'll need you know there is going to be a lot of priorities around that i think yeah well uh if you were planning to plead guilty to something on the internet and are now uh, woefully uh, well, you still can just go on twitter and plead guilty to it it's just you won't be able to pay the fine Yes. Uh, <laughs> let us know uh, and tag us at text message pod. Well, V3 this week covered news that BT and TalkTalk Talk have been rated the worst internet service providers by their customers in a survey of 1,800 members by which. Uh, now, you'll note, hopefully, the scepticism and uh, deep cynicism in my voice here. Uh, the UK's biggest broadband providers uh, are still apparently disappointing on basic customer service and speed and reliable uh, reliability, says which. Now, TalkTalk Talk had an approval rating of a woeful 38% of its <laughs> customers. Uh, BT 45% of its customers, Sky 48%, and EE 49%. Now, as V3 says, unfortunately, these four ISPs account for 72% of the UK wow. broadband market. Now, in my opinion, surveys like these are always BS. They're nonsense. Uh, angry masses motivated to choose to vote uh, while the happy either stay somewhat silent or just pipe up to support the little guy. And the little guys are often better. And certainly in this survey, they came out on top. I think Zen Internet uh, had a very high rate 
rating uh, for one. Uh, but nonetheless, it is worth pointing out that these surveys are often a crock, um, uh, and hence why BT, Sky, Talk, Talk, etc. all sit as the worst providers in the country. It makes me wonder why you lot are all still subscribing to them if they're that bad. Well, I mean, I have said, and I, I, I do not believe that there is a place in this country for Talk, Talk. I, do, I don't believe that company should exist. Um, I think it should be shut and sold. And I, <laughs> I think part of the part of the ruling for that should be that absolutely whoever set it up, like set up the infrastructure behind its customer, you know, uh, whatever databases needs to not be involved in whatever new company springs from it because it's a disgrace. Well, uh, you may be wondering in that case, uh, dearest listener, uh, why did we mention this if we think that surveys like this are silly? Well, a little bit of it is I wanted to poke uh, fun at it and also just to mention that it happened. Um, But the real reason is uh, because there's good news for the broader infrastructure market and for anyone who is disgruntled with their internet provider. Now, Ian, this is a story about uh, OpenReach and a proposal from Ofcom. Do you want to take us through uh, this news? Yeah, so uh, basically Ofcom's got some proposals for improving access to OpenReach's infrastructure, um, which will make it possible for competing broadband providers to put their own fibre products in BT's various uh, cable runs and over, you know, uh, using maybe even uh, phone pylons, which is uh, something we don't do for fibre in this country, but the Americans uh, do have that system. Um, so OpenReach, obviously, we I think we all know by now, surely, is the, is the company that does all that back-end stuff for BT, fibre connections, ducts, pipes, etc. Um, it's owned by BT, but they've recently there's been a ruling, hasn't there? They have to split it off. It has to be a separate company run by entirely separate people. Um, and that will give access to rivals like Sky and EE uh, to do what they want in the infrastructure. And, and um, Ofcom has said that uh, OpenReach has to provide that uh, at a cost that's spread out amongst everyone. So it won't be possible to just charge, say, EE, the full cost of going into those ducts and sort of running its own fibre. Um, yeah, now Ofcom said, said in a, they'd said in a statement that these, these are, I mean, the, they've got some proposals and they'll make it quicker and easier for BT's competitors, as you say, to you know, build their own fibre networks, uh, p- perhaps all the way to people's doorsteps uh, using existing uh, telegraph poles and, and the, the ducts and pipes and stuff, as you, as you said. Now, they've got, hang on, one, two, three, four, five proposals. Uh, yeah. Why don't you run us through these? Yeah. So... Um... Access on fair terms means that providers should be able to lay fibre using the ducts and poles as easily as BT can, um, and the cost for BT providing access should be spread across all its users, as I said. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the network ready to ready for use. OpenReach must repair any faulty infrastructure and clear block, block tunnels necessary for providing access. Pretty standard. Yeah, so essentially they would remain responsible for making it yeah. possible for companies to go in there if a, if a, yeah. if a tunnel's and they blocked. Can't just, yeah, and they can't just leave it and say, well, it's your problem if you want to go in there. You know, yeah. that's yeah. obviously unacceptable. I, mean, I, have, I have some sympathy for OpenReach on this. I, I do sort of feel like they get, they get quite put upon, but hey, it's a profitable business. They can probably survive. Uh, Mixed-use networks, um, so companies can lay fibre for uh, consumers and large businesses, provided the purpose of the network is primarily to deliver broadband to homes and offices. Uh, Homes and small offices. So I think the difference there is the companies can use the ducts to do like massive corporate, like lease line type things, um, but it still has to be with the primary benefit of of delivering to consumers. And and, And I I can sort of see why they do that, because obviously if, if you get some small upstart company coming in and doing 
big lease lines or you know big fiber for businesses it could it could cause problems because obviously there's been an investment in that already and uh, yeah so it makes sense to some extent uh final connections into homes uh means that bt should ensure its capacity is available uh on its telegraph poles for additional fiber cables that connect buildings to competitor networks um that could be interesting, I guess, if Virgin needs to fill in black spots on its network. Um, it could essentially use BT's work to make that a bit more financially viable. That could be good in itself because it would mean that Virgin would have access to more customers and that would probably force BT into doing better fibre products for those same customers, essentially, because at the moment BT is not really competing, is it, on, for most customers? Uh, and the last thing is better information, which uh, which OpenReach is sort of already does. It, it's got to create a digital map um, of its duct and pole network, so uh, its competitors can plan networks. They already have a map, I think. But I think the from what I gathered from reading the Ofcom page, they need to be you know stay on top of that and make sure that the the map is good information. That's very uh, interesting. I mean, that's doubt, doubtful that it's something we'd ever we'd ever get to see necessarily. No, but I mean, I'd be fascinated to see it. I'm sure we could talk to a, a small ISP and get them to show us um because it would be quite interesting to see wouldn't it like there must be some places where um there's either massive unused capacity or surprisingly little capacity maybe that's something we could look into doing maybe we could go and speak to a company like uh, like zen or hyper optic or somebody yeah. and talk to them about about all these proposals and how it might benefit them you know it's easy enough to sort of know what the likes of talk talk and sky and people think to all this because their pr machines always make sure their opinions are broadcast widely uh, but the smaller guys often not so maybe that's something we could do and if you'd be interested in us doing that do let us know podcast at nateslangson.com or if you work for one of these companies obviously uh, do get in touch so those are the five points uh, the uh, proposals that Ofcom has made. Um, now, it's in consultation. The consultation will end in June. Um, and whatever is decided upon in terms of, um, you know, proposing all this stuff into into uh, OpenReach uh, will come into effect next year, probably in the spring. So about a year away from now. Now, I was looking up some counterpoints um, to, um, to this because uh, most stories sort of parroted just uh you know offcom's lines here but i did find a an interesting comment and this came from matthew howitt um who is uh, an independent telecoms industry analyst and he'd said at quote access to open reaches network has has really been available for the past six years but the uptake has been virtually nil as companies could not make a business case out of putting their own fiber in bt's ducts making it cheaper by spreading the cost and and easier by making the map clearer might help if there really was a business case, I'm sure BT would have turned into a revenue stream to meet the demand, but if there, but it wasn't there. Rivals weren't queuing up ac- uh, asking for access. So what Howard's basically saying here is it's all well and good making this a thing that's more readily available, but they could do it anyway. Yeah. I suspect that the truth lies somewhere in between the two and that maybe part of the reason why they didn't is because they never feel they're actually going to get a, a good deal from OpenReach because it's always going to benefit its parent BT. Maybe being entirely level or at least as level as it can be uh, makes it more attractive to go in and do some of this stuff um so yeah and i think um it may have it, it useful implications for uh those community product product projects excuse me that uh pop up from time to time where someone decides that their village deserves better broadband and so they fund it themselves they put down infrastructure uh, i don't think for the most part i don't think it would be something that would get taken up by huge isps because largely they can make money off the you know using the bt infrastructure right so 
Uh, we'll see. Uh, anyway, let us know any thoughts you have on, on Ofcom's propositions and open reach and, uh, and broadband in general, uh, and, or, of course, the, the witch survey, if you want to disagree with me on that. Podcast at natelangson.com or at text message pod on Twitter. Quick one here. A payment card featuring a fingerprint sensor has been unveiled uh, by MasterCard and it follows a successful trial in South Africa. Uh, Essentially, this is instead of putting your card into the little uh, electronic reader and then tapping your pin, you shove it into the reader and hold your finger on a little fingerprint sensor. Basically the same as if you were paying with Android Pay or Apple Pay. And MasterCard said in a statement that South Africa is the first market to test this technology and that two separate trials were recently conducted. One was in a a leading supermarket retailer called Pick and Pay uh, and then Absa Bank, which is a subsidiary of Barclays over there in Africa. Uh, Cardholders have to enroll their card by registering uh, with their their bank, their financial institution, and then on registration, their fingerprint is converted, as it would be for anything else, into a little digital template that's stored on the card locally, and then you can use it at any card uh, globally, it, it says at least. Over the next few months, there will be more trials. They're going to conduct one in Europe, apparently. They're going to conduct them in Asia Pacific as well. And MasterCard has said they expect a full rollout later this year. Now, the main reason that I wanted to mention this, and it was Ian's idea to include it, is because it makes for a good segue into the quite voluminous amount of feedback we had from last week's show about contactless cards and uh, uh, payments using things like Apple Pay and Android Pay. So just before we transition into some of those great pieces of feedback, Ian, your thoughts on the MasterCard thing? Because I think it's a great idea. Yeah, it's cool. Um, It's a really good um, solution to the problem of you know pins being quite bad security generally quite hard to remember um you know fingerprint is it's not hard to fake a fingerprint but you can't necessarily do it in front of a store checkout because people will see what you're doing um so i i think it it gives you a sort of a decent amount of security and it's a clever idea to build it into something without needing a whole load new more of more equipment because obviously retailers have all just spent a load of money probably upgrading uh, to contactless machines. They probably won't want to do it again for something for fingerprints. So this makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Uh, well, let us know, of course, what you think uh, about that podcast at natelangson.com. Well, this is an apt time to move into our conversation uh, about contactless spending uh, feedback. We had a great, really great uh, number of responses, and we've, we've picked some of our, our favourites here. Um, I had one interesting one come in from Mike Wigmore, actually, who on Twitter, who said... Um, Try to use uh, phone and watch for contactless, he says, but tend to forget the facilities available. Not all shops provide contactless, so it's easier to default to my card. Right. Now, we also had, uh, for the rare occasion, a bit of multimedia come into the show. This was from Richard Oldroyd. Now, I liked this. He sent us a message, uh, and he said that he was inspired to record a really little sort of public service announcement on his YouTube channel uh, about... But to try and educate people about the fact that they can use their their iPhones and their Android phones uh, for contactless payments. And I love this because I thought this is probably the most succinct, short, to the point explanation of reality as uh, as I've ever heard. So this is what Richard put out. Did you know that Android Pay and Apple Pay work in exactly the same way as your contactless debit or credit card issued by your bank? If a shop accepts contactless payments, they accept your cards and your phones. He's right, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's, it's worth remembering. I mean, it, it is exactly the same system. And while I, I, I sort of 
I felt this was important, particularly when the thing first launched, because I had a conversation when I uh, the first day Apple Pay came to the UK, I went to the, I went to try it out in as many places as I could find to write a story about it. Uh, and I went to a chemist, which supported contactless. And I said, can I use my phone? And she said, no, only contactless cards. I was like, well, that's the same thing. So, but I didn't use it. So anyway, trivia. <laughs> um, indeed, good trivia there. Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Richard. In fact, both Richards. We had two Richards uh, write in. Um, no, we didn't. We we had one Mike and one Richard. But here comes another Richard. Uh, this is from Richard. Uh, and he said, uh, sent to podcast at com. I usually use my Apple, uh, my iPhone with Apple Pay at checkouts. However, I for one avoid paying for items at the till with my Apple Watch because it looks and feels so pretentious. It's interesting that, isn't it? That's a uh, a real kind of stigma, isn't it? Being the one who uses the watch. <laughs> Look at the nerd over there. Uh, but yeah. I agree. I, I, I think it's strange and I think it's particularly, it's, it's heightened by embarrassment when it doesn't work, which I've seen several yeah. times. It's, Although, it, again, I, I do find that the Apple Watch is slightly more reliable. I, I guess because it's it doesn't have that distance thing that I've, I have trouble with on the on the phone. Mm. Well, Richard continues, if I'm at a self-checkout, I'll happily wave my wrist near the terminal. Uh, this hands-free method of payment is particularly useful when trying to hold a fractious toddler. Uh, Amen so, to that. Yeah. So it's As essentially... the owner of one fractious toddler, I can <laughs> confirm. Yeah. So Richard basically saying he doesn't like doing it when he's in front of people, but when he's doing a self-checkout thing, the embarrassment is his and his alone, and uh, and that makes it a lot easier when you're with when you're with kids. So thank you, Richard, Richard, and Mike uh, for those bits of feedback. Now this next one comes from Josh. Uh, this is a little more uh, in-depth opportunity to uh, discuss the issue. Uh, Josh says, "Hi, Nathan Ian. Hi, Josh. Ian, say hello to Josh. Oh, I'm sorry. Hello, Josh." Mm. Josh continues. Love the show. Long time, first time. Uh, By the way, that confused me initially, but I see what he means now. Long time listener, first time writer. I'm glad you're here. Despite enjoying using my Apple Watch to pay at every opportunity, it still on occasion feels a bit awkward uh, and slightly less seamless to use over cards. Firstly, when using contactless cards at a manned till point, the action of reaching for your wallet and cards will more often than not tell the cashier that you are using card to pay. I a hundred percent agree, Josh. One hundred percent agree with that. That is totally true. Josh continues. The cashier then presses the button and the card machine is ready by the time the card is in your hand. With my Apple Watch, it's already out and I have to let the cashier know that I have a contactless device on my wrist that I'd like to pay with. Most cashiers eventually realise what I mean and don't stare at me blankly as I try to explain I can pay for my shopping with the same device I use to tell the time. However, what still exists, that awkward delay that is ultimately avoidable with a card. I agree. That is that is true there's a little sort of it's it's almost like a body language cue like people don't push past you on a train if it looks like you're about to get off i deliberately don't look like i'm getting off just to annoy people because that's the kind of guy i am Uh, that's on me by the way not josh but josh continues secondly i'm an in-house recruiter for the john lewis and waitrose brands and as a result i have not only my waitrose and my john lewis loyalty cards but also own a partner discount card my john lewis has apple wallet functionality however neither the my waitrose nor the discount card does as a result when paying it still feels silly to get my wallet out for other cards to then return my wallet to my pocket and use my watch for payment i wonder if other people with various loyalty cards or discount cards etc come across this same awkwardness many thanks yeah. and that's from I, that's from josh great insights, i enjoyed josh. that I, I also I'm a, I'm a big shopper at waitrose so uh you know i kind of like 
I, I like Josh automatically. Um, but <laughs> Snob. Uh, that, no, but that is a... No, not at all. Uh, I, I mean, I, 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 if you've been in a Waitrose, you'll understand that it is oh, a much mate. nicer shopping experience I, I would than anywhere happily, else. I would happily pay more money to shop at a Waitrose every week. If, if there was one near you. Yes, there isn't. Um, but he's right, actually, and I don't know why there aren't loyalty cards and discount cards and stuff like that on Apple Pay. It doesn't, I mean, it shouldn't be that difficult, presumably. I guess because yeah. there's no financial transaction, it's not necessarily in Apple's interest. But can you not have it put into the passbook and use it through that? Because it's the same system, isn't it? It is. My, I suspect it just isn't supported by passbook. I think that's. Right. I think that's part of the problem. But, but I mean, it's not difficult to get supported by passbook, is it? I mean, no. it's presumably just an API. I mean, I, I ran into this. Uh, when did I run into this? Uh, yesterday, I was buying a vegetable juice. Uh, it, it's an. In- incredibly uh hipster thing to to do on lunch but i did i go to the health place a couple of times a week and i buy a pressed uh, vegetable green thing uh, and they have a loyalty card because the things are bloody expensive uh, <laughs> and i give the loyalty card over to the person and then i hold my phone next to the contactless reader so actually i have run into this problem but it hasn't been a problem for me as recently no, because, as 24 well, hours ago because obviously if it's a loyalty card they tend to be stamped don't they so while the person's stamping that you can be paying with your contactless card so ah, it sort of works yes you're right it is stamped yes that's true We're so they've got about... something to be doing while you're paying and then when your transaction's done they can see on the terminal that you've paid and you're all good oh you are such an incredibly insightful individual you see that's why i like you that's why we do this show isn't it it's for those <laughs> like penetrative insights you know thrusting into the matter uh, <laughs> yes right sorry about that everybody um now we had another email uh, this one is not about contactless. This comes from our long-time listener and I believe our ambassador, uh, Luke, uh, L-U-U-K, that is. Um, thank you, Luke, for listening to us for so such a long time. He says, hey, Nate and Ian, and I'm going to pause it there, because last week, or was it the week before, we talked about uh, the driving test in Britain needing yeah. to use a GPS from December as part of the test. And I said I couldn't find a single example worldwide of anywhere that's doing this. And I thought maybe the UK was first, although I did say I thought that was probably unlikely. <laughs> yes. Luke says, I'm afraid your research has led you down, has let you down a bit. In the Netherlands, this has been implemented for about 10 years. Oh, there's a surprise. I mean, there's not a surprise because for one thing, where's Tom Tom from? I mean... Well, yes. Uh, and he, <laughs> he says it, the practical exam consists of four parts. I'm not going to go through all of these all of these parts, but one of them, he says, is driving with navigation. He says uh, the examiner will tell you to program an address into your navigation system and then follow the instructions. Um, so this is this is basically exactly what we're going to be doing. Uh, Luke says, I think the addition uh, of the GPS navigation is a very sensible step, though it does tend to set you up uh, as a more navigation-dependent driver to begin with. Uh, it's also important to keep up with changes in the world and in traffic. We'll see what the driverless car examinations will look like pretty soon, I think. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. It is a dependency. Well, thank you, Luke, uh, for sending in that thought. I, I knew somewhere must have uh, have this as part of their driving examination already, so it's good to know that the Netherlands is, uh, is ahead of the game. And if you live in a country that uh, has this, by all means um, write in and let us know i'd love to hear more about it um and see where else we're behind in the world um so thanks mike and richard and other richards and josh and luke uh, and everyone else who's written in this week uh, to podcast at natesangson.com or tweeting us at text message pod before we end the show let's check in with tom merritt across the pond and see what else has been going on in the global world of tech this week mr tom hey thanks nate 
Lots of F8 news this week, the Facebook Developer Conference, where Patrick Beja and I discussed Mark Zuckerberg's grand new vision for an augmented reality future. And with Microsoft replacing Wonderlist with its new to-do app, we talked about our own task managers. I myself don't even use one, I'll tell you why. Frightening, I know. We also got Jen Cutter's view on Twitch's new money-making options for streamers. All that and more at DailyTechNewsShow.com. Back to you guys. Well, thanks, everybody, for being here. A little bit of a longer show as well this week, uh, which is uh, fantastic, given that uh, about two days ago, I thought it was going to be a crap week because I had (laughs) nothing really that I wanted to talk about. So it's worked out quite well. Uh, Please, please do uh, consider supporting us um, on Patreon at patreon.com slash UK tech. You can find the links in our show notes at techpodcast.uk. You can find them in the MP3 description uh, for this MP3 in your podcatcher as well. there's no commitment. You can give us a try for as as little as um, two pounds uh, per episode um, for our longer cuts and and various other things. And uh, let us know any feedback as well. If uh, if you'd like to do this but you're you're put off by something, um, then uh, we'd welcome hearing the reasons for that as well. Podcast at natelangson.com is where you can send those two to. And thank you to everybody who's supporting us there. It, it really does make uh, a huge difference. Um, and I think unless there's anything else in, I think we'll uh, we'll skedaddle, shall we? No, I think that's uh, pretty much covered it. We're getting perilously close to episode 100, though, aren't we? Perilously close. And and do we have ideas, ladies and gentlemen? We do have ideas, don't we? We do. We have ideas. Uh, That's it. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.